0: Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we have together. I pray as we come to your word, you would grant us understanding to what you intended and that we would respond as you desire. Lord, work in the hearts of those who don't know you, that they might be broken and come to faith today. And Lord, for those of us who do, may we have a renewed encouragement in our walk with you through your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, many people have said, I have accepted Jesus, or I follow Jesus. Now, in our country, um, about 15 years ago, the number was about 78% that uh, believe that they've come to faith in Jesus, that they're following him. Uh, Now it's down to like 58 or 50, something like that. It's really low of those who would claim to follow Jesus. But that's still a lot of people. More than half of our nation claims to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that in mind, uh, sadly, if you look at the lives of many people, those lives betray their profession. You see, many people claim to be Christians, claim to believe in Jesus, and yet live lives that do not appear to have a genuine faith that works. And what I mean by that is they don't have a faith that is manifest in a genuine love for Christ, and thus it is exemplified by loving his people and serving his body. Jesus said that good trees do not produce bad fruit, and bad trees do not produce good fruit. John said in 1 John 2 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness, just as he is righteous, is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, when we look at lives, not because we're inspecting fruit or trying to watch over where people are at, but when we see lives of those who have named the name of Christ, but yet their profession betray their life, betrays their profession. It is truly heart-wrenching. It is hard to see that. But equally and opposite, when we see a truly changed life, one that has been brought forth through repentance and faith in Jesus, it should cause us to give thanks. And to rejoice. And that's exactly the response we're going to see today from the Apostle Paul and Timothy to the changed lives of the Colossians, which leads us to the question, can you really spot a truly changed life? And the one we're going to look and see if you can spot is your own. So we're looking at. Turn with me to Colossians chapter one, and we're continuing our look in the book of Colossians. And a little background, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers in Colossae. He is in prison. Um, He is under house arrest in Rome. And uh, evidently Epaphras has traveled 1,600 miles to share with him uh, about the Colossians. He will share, as we'll see today, about their faith and their love. And we're also going to see that there were some problems in Colossae. False teachers had infiltrated, and the Apostle Paul was concerned, and this letter is his response with his concern for these Colossians. Now with that in mind, we see in chapter 2, verse 4, that bad guys were trying to delude them with persuasive arguments. Uh, These uh, arguments they had were persuasive in regards to how they should follow the Lord, or whatever it might be, really how they should deal with their flesh and sin and that's really the issue you see in the end of chapter 2 we have uh, a statement these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence and those things that he was talking about were those things that the false teachers were trying to get these believers to do to try to deal with their flesh you see when we come to faith in Jesus Christ truly come to faith we don't want to do those things we did before and yet we struggle we have this body of death Paul would say, who was set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then false teachers will come along with a system to help you in your walk with the Lord. Well, here we see that they were bringing about secret wisdom. They were saying, in essence, you should be involved in religious ritual. That will help you. Uh, You need the help of angels, whatever it might be. You need to follow certain rules to, to, to be holy. You need to treat your body severely so that it won't sin or whatever it might be. And Paul says, these are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Kind of gives the gambit of things you'll see in in, in the Christian community of people who are being taken captive by false teaching. And so what is Paul's solution to this threat? Does he go and address every single one of those things? He touches on them very slightly. But what is his solution? His solution is a focus on Jesus Christ, a Christ-centered relationship. In chapter 1, we see that he is our Redeemer, our Creator. He is before all things. And in Christ, all things hold together. He is the head of the body. That's That's the church. He is preeminent. He is fully God and man. And he died to present us holy and blameless. And he is in you, and you are in him. And in chapter 2, we see that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So don't get taken captive. Trust the Lord. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we are to set our mind on the Lord, the things above, and we are not to uh, to 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 do those things that we did before. We're to put to death uh, the old life and those things and renew our minds. We're to say no to sin. We're to kill it off. We're to let the Lord let the Lord use his word to have it dwell richly in us, to clothe ourselves in Christ. We are to allow his peace to rule our hearts. We're to be thankful. We're to be renewing our minds, being controlled by his word, allowing Christ to govern all our actions. And then within that, we have how we are to relate to different relationships. In the marriage relationship, parent-child, slave-master work relationship, And in our relationship with outsiders, how it all applies to those relationships. And so this book is extremely important because we are tempted to have our eyes pulled off Jesus and the sufficiency of Christ alone in a personal relationship, trusting in him, to other things that supplement that in a very evil way. So the solution is Christ. And so with this in mind, we've seen already a a greeting in which we saw the desire of Paul and thus the desire of the Lord that God's grace would be unto us and his peace. God's grace and peace, that we'd function by his grace and peace, because we're saints. We're saints. We are those who have been set apart. We are holy, as we'll see today. So can you spot a truly changed life? How can we do so? Can you spot your own life? Is it truly changed? Well, let's take a look at our passage, verse 3. And I'm going to actually, we're going to go to verse 5 and a half today, Okay. Um, now, the verse numbers aren't inspired, and the half isn't inspired, but we'll go halfway through it. But I'm going to read all the way up to probably verse 9, because basically almost the whole chapter, not the whole chapter, is one long sentence. And so we need to remember that as we look at it. And so I'm going to read up a little bit past our passage, but we'll focus on 3 to 5 today. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, and it also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth." Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he has, excuse me, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a worthy manner with the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow, we got some good stuff coming, don't we? This is wonderful. And so here today, we're going to be looking at these first uh, few verses, verses 3 to 5. And notice, Paul and Timothy were so thankful for lives that were truly changed by Jesus Christ. And again, it is such a burden to see those that they name the name of Christ. You go, man... Even to have to ask the question in your heart, not to be a fruit checker, but because you love them. Boy, are they saved or not? That's a burden. But when we see someone who's truly saved and we have them around us, we should be rejoicing. We should be thankful and we should be praying for one another. And it's so easy to take for granted those around us who have truly come to faith. We should be so thankful for the changed lives that the Lord has brought forth. Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now we have a, a triad faith, hope, and love, right? And so as we begin, I want to point out some grammar of this passage, first of all. That's helpful. We have the main verb, which is we give thanks. And then we have two participles. Those are like for us in English, ing. They don't stand on their own. They they, are, they support a verb. So we have we give thanks and two participles. One in the present tense and one in aris. What does that mean? One is continual, habitual. The other is, is a completed action. We give thanks in the first participle, praying. We give thanks continually, habitually praying. The context is thankfulness and we are praying, right? And then the second one is we give thanks. And you have it translated in your Bible since we heard, but literally it is having heard completed action. Having heard. We give thanks praying. We give thanks having heard. That's the structure of what we're going to see today. and Hopefully that will be helpful as we look at it. So first of all, notice they were thankful and they were constantly praying. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. Now the we, who is that? It's Paul and Timothy, Right? Paul and Timothy, they were continually, habitually thankful. Now, Paul is in chains. He is uh, tied possibly to a Roman soldier 24-7. He's in a bad situation, physically speaking, but he's thinking about the things above. He's sitting his mind on things, and so he's thanking God for what God has done in the lives of these Colossians. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And it's a continual habitual tense. We're, We're constantly thanking God. You know when good things happen to you and you are a believer, you're constantly thinking, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you so much, thank you so much, thank you. God, you're so good, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? We're thinking about it. We're just constantly thanking God. And the Apostle Paul here is constantly thanking God. And they give it to, and obviously this is where that thankfulness is directed. We give thanks to God, He deserves the glory and credit alone. And it is to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the Father who sent his Son, the Son who came and died for our sins. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, praying for you always. He had an ongoing heart attitude of thanksgiving. And as we'll see, because of what God had done for these Colossians, changing their lives through the word of truth, the gospel, the grace of God and truth, verses 5 and 6. God had brought about salvation of these Colossians, and Paul was so thankful for their genuine salvation. And what a blessing it is to see genuine fruit in a real relationship with Jesus. Now, we're not perfect. If you look at any one of us, you're going to see sin. You're going to see trouble. But if it's a true believer, you're going to see fruit. Good trees do not produce bad fruit. Bad trees do not produce good fruit. we are going to see fruit. You're going to see a relationship here. And he is thanking God for that. He is thanking God. Paul had no room in his heart for complaining. He would share with the Philippians, do all things without complaining and grumbling. No room for that. Because that's the way the world is. And we stand out as lights when we're not that way, when we're thankful. Indeed, we see his thankfulness. And notice where that thankfulness was manifest. It wasn't just thank you, thank you, thank you. It was thank you to God in prayer. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, our Lord, he is the Lord. He is the sovereign. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His name, when he took on human flesh, is Jesus. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord saves. And he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, who would reign forever but would have to suffer first before the glories to follow. And so their thankfulness is manifest, praying, notice he says, always for you. Praying always for you. He continually prayed for these believers. He was so thankful and it brought him to prayer. And I want to ask you what your prayer life is like. If it is just a laundry list of trouble for God. Now, yes, we are to cast our cares upon the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. But there should be with that thankfulness. You see, even when we're worried, we're commanded to uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that our request be known to God. Yes, we may have a list of stuff, and that's okay. It should be our whole life before the Lord, But there should be thankfulness. So what brings you to pray? I posit to you at times we don't pray enough for one another. We don't go, wow, praise the Lord. These are real believers. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ and they want to walk with Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for my brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord just in our heart thanking God for genuine salvation. You know, it's really obvious when someone's not saved, but when it's obvious they are. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So with that, notice Paul now begins to uh, elaborate on the reason for his thankfulness. He's thankful because he's heard of their fruit of a true relationship with Jesus. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Mm -hmm. Since we heard, or literally as I mentioned before, having heard, We give thanks, praying, we give thanks, having heard, it's a done deal, airs tense, of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I mentioned this already, but it's having heard, completed action. Paul and Timothy have heard something in the past about these Colossians. More specifically, they've heard two things. First of all, they've heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. And then the second thing, they've heard of their love for what you have for all the saints. And it's interesting. We're going to see that genuine faith is manifest in love. Later on, he's going to say that Epaphras has informed us of your love in the Spirit. He doesn't say your faith. He says of your love. Your love, which is because of your faith, right? That's what to see? Indeed, Epaphras had traveled 1,600 miles from Colossae to Rome, and evidently he has revealed to the Apostle Paul the true relationship these Colossians have with the Lord. And so Paul and Timothy have heard of this response, and initially it brings them to thankful prayer. Thankful prayer. Now, notice what he says here. Having heard verse two, verse four, excuse, verse four, excuse me, or since we have heard, or having heard, of your faith in Christ Jesus, we don't stop thanking God and praying because of, since we've heard of that, since we heard of that, and there's so much faith out there these days in the world. Everyone talks about faith, but the real issue is faith in what or faith in who. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith in the Messiah who saves, the King of Kings who saves. He is the Lord who took on human flesh and died for your sins and rose from the dead. Your faith in Jesus Christ. You can have faith. There's a lot of different Jesuses out there. Jesuses, uh, a lot of false teachers will give you a Jesus that's all panders to you. And it's not hard to believe in that Jesus. But there's a, the true Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. And to live to him, to give up our lives, to turn to him, right? It's a different Jesus. It's the true Jesus, the one who died for our sins. And they have faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Faith is not in words alone or concepts. It's in the person of Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God. And so here we see that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11, One, the conviction of things not seen. I'm fully assured that this Jesus is who he said. I'm fully assured of what he has done and what he has promised. I believe in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way while he discusses the present unbelief of the nation of Israel. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. He's going to talk about uh, faith. He's going to talk about faith. Romans 10. Romans 10. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, and this is verse 8, in your mouth and in your heart. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy, basically. Deuteronomy, and in that portion of Deuteronomy, hey, the commandments, they're too far, they're too hard to go. But the, the one command, to turn to the Lord with all your heart, that's not too far. It is near you, it's right there, it's graspable. You can do it even if you, um, you can do it. It's not saying that you have to use your work to do or anything. You just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, The word is near you. It's in your mouth in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we are preaching. Verse 9 of chapter 10 of Romans. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever, what, believes in him. It's faith in Jesus, by the way. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, save me. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus was the only one who met God's requirements. He, being fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life and died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared. He is the unique one and only Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the only Savior. And as John the Baptist would say, as he saw the Lord Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those sacrifices didn't save anyone, didn't bring any forgiveness of sin, but they pointed to the one Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus had risen from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He sees those dejected disciples and talks with them and then reveals himself. And he shared with them, he shared with them the truth. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures, verse 20, 45. And he said to them, this is written, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now you say, wait a second, that's not faith, that's repentance. Well, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. When I truly believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, I'm turning in my mind. I'm changing my mind. I was a sinner on my own way, didn't care about it. And I realize there's judgment and I'm turning to Jesus to be saved from that judgment. And I believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. I'm turning from sin to Jesus. I'm repenting. Mark 1.14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Commanded to do so, by the way. God commands everyone to repent and believe. And if you disobey that command, you will spend your eternity in hell. But if you obey that command, you trust in a good Savior who died for your sins. You believe in him, you repent and believe, you'll be saved. So my question is, have you trusted in Christ? He is the only way. He is the only way. And these Colossians had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you do, there's going to be something else. There's going to be some evidence. You see, saving faith produces something in your life. Saving faith is, is, the, is, is, is the reality of a real relationship with the Lord, and that will produce something in your life. Notice what he says back in our passage. We give thanks to God, verse 3, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And look at this, the love which you have for all the saints. That's pretty interesting. The love which you have. There's a lot of people in churches who love the people that love them. They love the people they like, who are like them. But they don't love all believers in the church around them. They just love a select few that may help them, whatever it might be. But here, he says, and the love which you have for all the saints. That's talking really locally, I believe, in the context of the Church of Colossae. You see, so many people say, as I shared in the beginning, I've accepted Jesus. But their lives betray their words. I'm not telling you to go out and spot and say, "Oh, they're saved, oh, they're not." I'm not telling you that. Just saying, when it is observable, our hearts are broken over it, or we, we're concerned for someone's salvation, whatever it might be. So many professing believers, but not much genuine fruit from God's perspective. I'm not talking about food bank and all the goody two shoes stuff. Nothing wrong if Christ is leading that, but a lot of people do the goody two shoes stuff to, 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 as their good works. It's not from God at all. We're going to see primarily the evidence of good of a true salvation is love for the body of Christ. We see here very clearly, notice in Luke let's turn here actually, Luke six forty three. Luke six forty three. You see the Lord Jesus actually tells us what to do. He tells us to love our brother. He tells us specifically in his word, and he tells us through his apostles in his word. Now, Jesus says here, Luke 6, 43, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? There's a lot of people saying Lord, Lord, and not doing what he says, and Jesus will say why. Maybe that's you today. You're going you're gonna to realize, hey, I'm not serving the Lord. I'm not doing anything. There's no love in my heart for the body of Christ. Well, why would you call him Lord, Lord? We'll talk about that. So then, it is discouraging and heartbreaking to see someone who doesn't have true, genuine faith. But equally and opposite, when we see someone who does, it should cause us to pray continually and be thankful. We should be continually thankful. Thankful for those around us who have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, thankful for those we minister and serve with, praying for one another continually because of genuine faith and thus love. Notice what he says here. Having heard or since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints. The love that you have for your saints, for the saints. Now remember what we saw in verse 2 about saints, right? He's not saying the love you have for the church fathers who have designated certain men as saints the love you have for St. Augustine, the love you have for St. Thomas Aquinas. He's not saying that. He's not saying the love you have for all the saints. The saints, as we saw in our last lesson, the saints are those who have been set apart by God, sanctified, holy. We are saints. He actually called the Colossians saints earlier. You see, those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus are saints. We've been set apart and are now holy because of our relationship with the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Contrary to the Catholic view of the saints about someone who has earned some high spiritual position through their deeds, saints, as revealed in the word of God, are those who are saints because of faith in Jesus Christ. When you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you were placed into a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, and his death, burial, and resurrection apply to you. And having been redeemed, the price paid, having have our sins forgiven, having been justified, declared righteous, we're saints by calling. God called us into a relationship with him, and we are saints in position. Now, we're not always saints in our actions. We see that even with the Colossians. Later on, Paul's going to say, hey, don't do this, do this. Well, saints, if they're perfect, they're not doing that. So the saint doesn't speak about our actions. speaks about our position. But our position should motivate us to then live in trusting Christ in a, a godly life. We've been called because he is holy to be holy in all our behavior. First Peter chapter 1, 14 through 16. So then, he's talking about believers. The love you have for all the saints. And I mentioned it. It is not the love you have for those saints that are like you. The love you have for the saints that like you. right? It's the love for all the saints. You're going to see that it's really easy to love people who treat you well. It's really easy to love people that are like you, that are the same same in their personalities, whatever it might be. But it's much more difficult to love uh, others who are different or whatever it might be. He says, your love for all the saints. And we've seen this in church. We've seen this with some bad guys that come through. They certainly love their little groups and their little cliques. But they don't love everybody, and you see it in their actions, by the way. You see it in their actions. So then he says, your love for all the saints. Now, what's this love? We have the word translated love here as agape. It speaks of a heart attitude that produces an action. It's an attitude of love that brings forth an action, and that action uh, is self-sacrifice in the context of obedience to the truth of God. If we love one another, if we love the Lord, we're going to see him as more valuable and his desires more valuable. We're going to see your desires as more valuable, your righteous desires. We're going to see that. We love because God first loved us. We didn't love before we came to faith, but when we came to faith, we now have the capacity and ability to love. And we don't need anyone to actually teach us about that. You say, wait a second, we're teaching about love right now. Yes, I am. But we don't need that. It is innate to believers. We need to be reminded of it. 1 Thessalonians 4, nine. Now as to the love of the brethren, that's phileo love, you have no one, no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. God teaches us to love one another. We don't need anyone to teach us. It's innate to our relationship. When we are abiding in him, we're going to love. What is one of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit? It is love. Galatians chapter 5. When I abide in Jesus, it's going to manifest in love. And it's interesting, down in verse 8 in our passage in Colossians, notice what Epaphras had informed them of. He has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. You see, when we abide in Christ and His Spirit is manifesting, in, uh, His Spirit is, is, has control of us, is using the Word to direct us, we're going to love. It's a fruit. It's a fruit. And by the way, it's a special love for the body of Christ. Yes, we love the world in a sense that we love them and that we desire them to be saved in that sense. You know, if there's someone, if the choice is enjoy myself or, or help someone get saved, I'm going to choose to get them to be saved, right? I'm going to care for them more than myself, right? We love in that sense. But here, this is a special love for the body of Christ. And we have been saved unto this. We've been saved unto a love for the body of Christ. First Peter 1:22. Since in obedience to the truth you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, you obeyed the gospel, and that's to, unto a sincere love of the brethren. He says, if that's the case, then fervently love on one another from the heart, for you have been born again of seed which is which is which is not seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Now, if you go to First John, and actually let's go there, there's a ton of passages about the evidence of a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll say back in chapter 2, basically, certainly in chapter 1, he'll say, you know, that we're to walk like him. Uh, but if we say we have no sin, we're liars, right? But we're the confessors of sin. We confess. We, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he writes these things, chapter 2, that we would not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then he talks about the fact that if someone says, I know Christ, but I don't obey him, how can I be saved, basically? That's what he's going to say. And then he goes on to really give examples of what that obedience looks like, and it's really love in the context of the body of Christ. And let me share some passages. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, and this is what I mentioned, but let me share it. The one who says, I have come to know him. 1 John two four, the one who says, I've come to know, hey, I've come to know Jesus, okay, and does not keep his commandments. That's not the Ten Commandments. That's not the Namas. It's the law. It's his commands. Jesus says this in his word, okay, it's a, it's a antelope, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But he who keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him also ought to walk in the same manner as he walked, It's walking in love. Ladies are looking at that right now, by the way. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is in the word which you have heard. Now we'll talk about that commandment. Let's talk about the commandment to love. Notice in chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice, that means continually, habitually do. When you practice, your kid's practicing baseball. They're doing it all the time, Right? Practicing piano, doing it all the time. It's what you do over and over and over again, right? He says here, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not, what? Love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was from the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's how you can know. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now he's going to give a little example. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Look down to uh, verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and what? Love one another just as he's commanded. And the one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. There's a whole bunch. I can read this whole whole book, but go to chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Your faith and the love which you have for the saints, he's informed us of your love in the spirit. It's true. It's the real deal. And we praise God and thank him for it. He says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifest in us, that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or merciful satisfaction, by the way, you could say, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And and you can keep reading, but in verse 19 he'll say, we love because he first loved us. Tremendous, wonderful reality. True biblical love will manifest in loving the body of Christ. Now, I posit to you that that love will even manifest in other ways, certainly helping people in need, whatever it might be in the body of Christ. If a brother's in need, how could you turn your heart to that, right? To genuine need. But I, manif- I believe the scripture also manifests that our love for one another is going to manifest in serving one another. Uh, 1 Peter chapter four eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers them all to the sins, and he'll go on the next thing to say, Hey, you ought to be serving one another right as each has received a spiritual gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god what does paul say after sharing all the spiritual gifts and serving one another in romans 12 let love be without hypocrisy romans 12:9 and folks our love manifest in serving with that comes labor you go labor you mean work yes labor Paul gave gave thanks for the Thessalonians to God, making mention of their prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Labor of love, love's toil. Would people see the toil in your life for others? And now that toil we're going to see is in a specific sphere. It's in the sphere of obeying God in relationship to others, by the way. we will see that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 5, Paul says, for, when, for this reason, when I can endure no longer, I, f- I sent to find out about your faith, for the fear the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come from us to you and has brought good news of your faith and love. Good news. Good news. You see, in a true relationship with Jesus, we're going to love. And when we're abiding in Him, we're going to love. We don't need to be taught that. We need to listen to his word through his, by his spirit. Love, God's love, by nature, flows through the believer who's abiding and obeying Christ, being led by his spirit. Love is a fruit of the spirit. It is an evidence of the changed life. When we obey our Lord, that fruit of that obedience is love. And look, at I read this earlier, but let's look at it again. Philippians chapter 2. read it at our offertory time, but we see... It's love, 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 and then here's Jesus' example, which is obedience. Love, love, love. And obedience. But that obedience brought about love for us, didn't it? Showed love for us. Philippians two one. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of what? Love. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, any, any affection, compassion, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, what? Maintaining the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's practical love there, by the way. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men and being found appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's love. That's love. We see in 1 John 3.23, and this is the commandment that we have. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus and we love one another. We're to love one another. And that love will be manifest will be manifest in obeying God's word. One last passage I want to share. Turn to first you two. First John four verse twenty. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother has not seen he whom, he has, whom he has seen; cannot love the God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from the one who, lo- excuse me, verse twenty-one of chapter four. And this is the commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And then chapter five: Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, whoever believes that Jesus Christ, excuse me, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child. Now, that's not speaking of Jesus at this point. You'll see in a second. Born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments or commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. He commands me to study, to show myself approved, to preach the word in seedness and out of season. If I love him, I'm going to do that. I'm going to love you by doing that. He commands each one of us to serve with the gifts that we've been given. If we love one another, we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that. That's a genuine manifestation of love. Obedient, like our Lord, even to the point of death, as he death on the cross was say. So then, true biblical love is towards believers. The love which you have for all the saints. Back in our passage. Does your life exhibit a true faith in Christ and a love for his people? Do you have a desire to obey Christ by serving other believers or are you focused on serving your own interests merely? Do you desire to gather in fellowship with other believers or do you hide out in home, isolated from the body? I posit to you, you can't stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you are forsaking the assembly of the brethren. We need to be together. When people separate themselves, that is an evidence of self-love or one's own desire. Powers 18, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. So, brothers and sisters, it's a love for all the saints, all those brothers and sisters around you. Does your life exhibit this? God commands us to love. He commands us to do so. Jesus says this is my commandment that you love one another. John 15:12 Just as I have loved you, it's my commandment. And when we see that, it should bring us to thankfulness. They are true believers, they trust in Jesus, they're loving one another, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these brothers and sisters who have faith in you and love one another. Thank you so much. So then, love for his people is an evidence of faith in Christ. So what else can we observe about changed lives of these Thessalonians? Look at uh, uh, verse 5 here. They had a true eternal hope, as revealed in the gospel. When you see Christians who are hopeless, something is very wrong, by the way. Something is very wrong when a Christian is hopeless. They have either never had true hope or their hope has been obscured by sin. The reality is we have hope. We are those who are supposed to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have within us. That implies you got hope. You got hope. So our passage, we give thanks to God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of what you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And he'll go on to continue to explain the gospel, the glorious gospel. Now, the grammar here is very difficult. I'm not going to get into an explanation of everything here, but this because is causal, okay? It's translated correctly, because. You know, I went to uh, Walmart because I had a stomachache. I needed to get something, right? Whatever it might be. It's it's causal. The question is, what is the causal relating to? Is it relating to we give thanks because of the hope laid up in heaven? Or is it because of your faith and your love we get, you have that hope in heaven. Well, I think it's basically both, but it says here, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Obviously, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to love, and you are one that because of the gospel, you now have a hope laid up for you in heaven. It is founded, it is laid up. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, what you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel gives hope. That's where you learned it. It's where hope was first revealed, of which you previously heard in the word of truth. The gospel is hopeless and without God. And the gospel brings true, genuine hope. True, genuine hope. And again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. This hope is laid up for us in heaven, the, the term speaks of being reserved. It's it's safe. It's reserved. It's certainly translated laid up in another portion. And in one portion, in the in the parable of the ten minas, I think it's in, in Luke, um, the person who didn't, who who basically buried his money, he kept it in a handkerchief. He laid it up in a handkerchief. He reserved it there. The bad guy, right? It's speaking of safely putting something somewhere. It is laid up for you in heaven. Now, I think we all understand in general what hope is. It speaks of an expectation, something you hope for, okay? And, and, an, and an unbiblical hope, I can hope today that it will snow. But it's not going to snow, right? There's no promises from God, today it will snow. But I can have an expectation. Now, that's a false hope, by the way. That's a human hope. I can hope for my desires. And we do do that. It's nice, we throw those on the Lord, we say, Lord, I pray that this might happen. If this is your will, right? Nothing wrong with that. But true biblical hope is in that which is unseen. It's not what is seen. Romans chapter 8, speaking of ultimately our glorification, Romans 8 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We sing these great songs about hope, about heaven and what God has done for us, right? It's important to understand what hope is, but primarily we need to understand what biblical hope is. And primarily, biblical hope is hope in God. Start there. Psalm 43, verses 5 and 11, we see it is hope in God. Acts 24.15, Paul made it clear he had a hope in God. 1 Timothy 5.5, five, uh, the qualification for widows to be added to the list. One of them is that they fixed their hope in God. Uh, indeed, the holy women of old hoped in God, 1 Peter 3.5. Paul would tell Timothy uh, that they labor and strive because we fixed our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Indeed, our hope is in Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, he is the blessed hope. In 1 Thessalonians, we see that they had a steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. Paul also makes it clear in First Timothy 1.1 that Christ Jesus is our hope. In uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we see Paul shares that in him the Gentiles shall hope, speaking of Christ. Now, we put our hope in God and our hope in Christ, but we also hope for what is associated with him and what he has promised. You see, if Jesus was our hope for this life only, we are all to be pitied, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, in the context of the resurrection, Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. It's a worthless hope. And so here... Because of what Christ has done, bringing salvation through his death on the cross, we are assured of one thing. We're assured of eternal life because of the forgiveness of sins. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of glorification. We have the hope of this body of death being done away. We have the hope of being with Jesus forever. He's at the right hand of spirit in our hearts, but he's the right hand. We have the hope of being with him. Paul would share in Titus chapter 3, verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You learn about that in the gospel, that you're not going to die in your sins and go to hell if you trust in Jesus. There's eternal life. There's eternal life. You shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You learned that in the gospel. You learn that. First John chapter three, we know that we're going to see him as he is. Wow, I'm going to see Jesus. I have a hope in this, beloved. Now we are the children of God. It's not appeared what we will shall be. Hey, we haven't seen what we're going to be in glory yet. Wow, it's coming. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Wow, but we, because we shall see him like he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed. On him, purifies himself just to see his pure. You see, our hope in Jesus also is that what he's going to do when we see him, we're going to be glorified. We're going to have eternal life forever. We have eternal life, but we will experience eternal life forever and ever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have hope. He says, because of the hope reserved, laid up, For you in heaven. We give thanks. You got saved. And you got the true evidence of salvation. And thus you got heavenly hope. So we thank God. We praise him. Because it doesn't end here. It goes on forever. God brings his salvation. Our eternal life. Laid up. Laid up. Now. As sure as judgment is coming. Eternal life is coming for us. It is reserved, it is laid up, it is secure. It is secure. So we praise God. How many times do you praise God for your brothers and sisters with the thought, hey, they have eternal life. Praise that they came to faith, but they have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now with this in mind, let's make one thing clear. Non-believers have no hope. Ephesians 2:12, remembering at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In First Thessalonians chapter four, we're not to grieve as the rest who have no hope. You see non-believers talking about their, their family members who have died, they have no hope. I think I heard them, they were there or they're with me or this and that. They said this stuff, and you go, "It's so sad, they have no hope." It's just made up the same way I said, I hope it snows today. That's not a real hope. It's a false hope. It's not based on faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for that are revealed in the word concerning Jesus Christ. We have a hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. who protected by the power of God through faith faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We have the hope, Acts 23, verse 4, of the resurrection of the dead. If I died today, I have hope before that. I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be raised because of Jesus. Titus 3, 7, we have the hope of eternal life. First John 3, 1-3, we have the hope that we will be like him when we see him and we'll be with him. Colossians 3, Colossians 1, 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Hope of glory. And folks... If you're a true believer, you should be ready to give an account for why you have hope. This whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. All the stuff going on, don't put your hope here. You're in trouble. It's just getting worse. And don't put your hope in the church. Evil men and apostles will proceed from bad to worse. apostasy is coming. Don't put your hope in that. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. The world doesn't have any hope, but we do. And we need to be ready to share I know I'll be resurrected. I know I will live forever with no sin, with no more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain, no more death. I, ne- I learned that in the gospel, that I would receive eternal life. So we need to start praising God for the right things about our brothers and sisters. They got faith and they love and they have eternal life. Eternal life. Let me ask you this. Is your hope in what Christ has done and promised is it what he who he is? If not, you have a, a worthless hope if for this life only. If Jesus is just your little your little rabbit's foot for this life, you are all men to be pitied. Yes, we do cast our cares, we do pray, but that's not it. This life is not it. We have the hope of eternal life. Now, maybe some of you are true believers, and your hope has gotten dimmed through sinfulness, whatever it might be. Confess your sin. And get into the scriptures. Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans fifteen four. So then the Apostle Paul was so thankful and praying in Timothy and praying for these Colossians because they were genuine believers who trusted in Christ as evidenced by their love for every one of of them together, and that they had a true hope laid up for them in heaven, a living hope. So then, where are you at today? Do you have a true hope? Do you have a true hope that if you died today, you would be in eternity with the Lord? Do you have a true hope based on the truth of God? You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Is that where your hope is? These Colossians had a genuine faith in Christ, and their faith worked. Do you name the name of Christ? Are you obeying him? Are you loving your brothers and sisters? Out of a changed heart? That should happen. It's an evidence. It's an evidence that you do have a genuine true hope to have heard the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these Colossians who you saved. Thank you for Paul and Timothy and their thankfulness to you and their prayer for this group of believers. What an example it is for us. Lord, um, it is such a burden to see people that claim your name but don't know you, but what a joy it is to see those who do. Lord, may we be thankful for one another because of what you have done in the lives of each other through faith in your son, Jesus. May we be thankful for how you are loving uh, us through one another, Lord God. And may we be thankful that those who have trusted in your son have eternal life, and we have that together. Father, change our hearts, help us to to see things rightly, to focus on the things above and not the things of earth. And lastly, Lord, I pray for anyone who is listening or here today who doesn't have a true, genuine hope, who's not truly trusted in Jesus. Lord, may they see their sin rightly, may they confess it, may they believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. I pray for that. Thank you so much for this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus."